Welcome to the Medical Association of Georgia's award-winning Top Doc Show. With more than 8,000 members who care for patients in every specialty and practice setting, MAG is the leading voice for physicians in Georgia. Go to mag.org to join MAG if you're a physician in Georgia. And thanks to MAG Insurance Agency for its support as a sponsor. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of MAG's Top Doc Show. I'm your host and MAG's Director of Communications, Tom Cornegay. Today's episode addresses monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID-19. Our guests include Dr. Danny Brandstetter and Dr. Joe Havlick, who are both infectious disease specialists with the Wellstar Health System. Welcome and our sincere thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. I'd like to begin by asking Dr. Brandstetter uh, for, I guess, just a, uh, a layman's uh, overview of how this treatment works. So antibodies are how humans fight the disease uh, COVID-19, a virus. So this product, this medicine is antibodies itself. So it gives a uh, person a head start on protecting itself once there is a need for treatment of COVID-19. In addition, we can give it as prophylaxis. So people can go ahead and have that circulating around if they've been recently exposed to, uh, to prevent severe illness and even symptomatic illness. Okay, great. And I, I think you might've just touched on this a bit, but I, I guess, Dr. Havlock, how is this actually administered to the patient then? So it's given IV. Um, so it, it, and it can be given sub-Q, but there's been some studies that have suggested that IV may be somewhat more advantageous. So for the most part, what we have been doing in our health system is giving it IV. Okay. And uh, I, I guess, uh, Dr. Havlick, what kind of uh, success have you seen with this treatment uh, based on your experience so far? Well, the hard part, Tom, is, is you know, we don't either, uh, Dr. Branson or myself, don't see all the patients that receive the treatment. And this is kind of a moving target, but we'd like to think what we've done is prevented people that would have normally gotten sicker with COVID-19 from going into the hospital and having more severe disease process. The hard part is we're going to have to really kind of summarize what happened in the most past couple of months, because for the most part, this treatment really wasn't available until earlier this year. And we've gone through these different surges. And once we went down from the last surge, you know, there wasn't much use of it. But now again, this time around, we'll probably have the most experience. I think um, Dr. Brand Center and I both are aware that we're probably seeing about four to 600 doses per week through the Wellstar health system. So fair amount of use um, through our health system at least. Okay, and uh, anything you'd like to add on that uh, front, uh, Dr. Brandstetter? The data would tell us that if we're giving 600 uh, doses that we're preventing at least, at least uh, 40 hospitalizations. In addition to the hospitalization benefit, we know that the shedding of the virus by the infected person is decreased. So we prevent transmission within the community as well. So there's a dual benefit, not only to the person, but also to the community because it reduces the risk of having more COVID infection out there in the communities. Okay. And Dr. Havlick, is there a, 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 a best type of patient in terms of the ideal candidate to receive this treatment? So uh, initially, because there were limited supplies, they had certain criteria 
that were more exclusive. So the elder patients, uh, particularly 65 and above, people that had various uh, disease processes that predisposed them to having more complications with COVID-19, which would have been the obvious diabetes, hypertension, lung disease, heart disease, or immunocompromised for other reasons. Uh, and then they included also BMI greater than 35, I think in the early part. Um, as time has gone on, because the supplies are increased, they've decreased that age limit and we can give it to uh, younger people now. Um, and they've decreased the BMI to just over 25. And, and, and basically it's been opened up to, you know, there's more latitude such that if there are other reasons that doctors feel that the patients would benefit from it, uh, that they can give it. So it, it really, I think it's really opened it up so that a lot more people can get it. That's great. Uh, and, and Dr. Brancetter, do patients generally need a doctor's referral to get to, uh, or receive this treatment? Absolutely. So this is emergency use authorization product. So they need an order from a physician. The physician does need consent and the patient needs to be provided with a fact sheet, um, basically what's going on with this um, medicine and, and what to expect from side effects and uh, the, what to expect during treatment and the effect of the treatment. Okay. And Dr. Havlick, if I, if I receive this treatment, should I also be getting the vaccination as well? Yeah. So, um, the simple answer is yes, but there's a timing issue. Um, first of all, because it is a monoclonal antibody, um, it could negate if you were trying to give the vaccine at the same time. And the effect of the monoclonals we estimate lasts in the body about 90 days. So if you happen to just have the vaccine, but a week or two later got sick with uh, COVID and are a higher risk patient deemed necessary, uh, we'd still encourage you to get uh, the monoclonals. If you haven't received the vaccine and you're getting it because you're symptomatic with COVID, we would say wait until 90 days after you got it to get the maximum effect of the, or the vaccine. If um, you're getting it from a prophylactic standpoint, and we didn't mention that if you, uh, in any detail, but if, if you were exposed with a significant exposure, which we define as greater than 15 minutes where you're at high risk for aerosolized uh, particles, um, then uh, where you're not masked in that, then that would be considered a high risk exposure. Or, you know, let's say you're living with a family member that has COVID and all that, that would be again, considered high risk exposure. Then you should be able to get it from a preventive standpoint, as Dr. Branstetter said earlier. Um, but, you know, the vaccine timing then will just depend on um, that. If you've already received the vaccine, great. You can get the monoclonal antibodies. Um, if you are not received the vaccine, but are have, getting the monoclonal antibodies, probably want to wait 90 days. Okay. And uh, Dr. Branson, where is this uh, uh, treatment available in Georgia right now? Through the Wellstar Health Systems, um, we have it at urgent care locations um, and some of our acute care facilities. So our physicians are putting in a referral uh, through our electronic medical record. Our centralized scheduling is then referring them at a location that is convenient and the first available for the patient to get to. 
There are other locations throughout our state as well. Um, and those can be um, Googled and you look at where is my closest one to my location. And there's several listed there. Um, Combat COVID uh, website is also a good website to check for a location nearest uh, anyone that may be listening out of state. Okay, and Dr. Hablick, it, it sounds like based on what I've, I've read and, and, and seen that there may be some limitations to, to the treatment. What's, where are we today and where do you think things are going to go in the future in terms of the accessibility, availability of this treatment in Georgia? So we're limited by a couple of factors. Number one is supply. As Dr. Brandstetter uh, talked about a few minutes ago is that this is an emergency use authorization, which means it's not a commonly available drug. It's released by the government. There are supplies of it. Our hospital system has to request supplies and, uh, and so our health system gets a limited number of, of vials of the product per week and that, and it varies from week to week. Um, I'm assuming the same happens across the state with other health systems as well. Uh, so that's probably one of the big factors up front. Second is, you know, if you're going to be giving an IV infusion to patients that are symptomatic, you want to have the right type of place to receive it. And you know, since these are uh, respiratory tract infections and people can be uh, infected who are not, you know, in that area. So you don't want to just use your regular infusion centers, uh, preferably to be giving it. So we've had to designate specific places. Uh, and as Dr. Brandstetter said at Wellstar, what we've done is in our urgent care centers, they've set up rooms where they can do it so they can get a limited number of doses. And then at our different hospitals have worked out what is a convenient place to do it that it can be given safely. And then lastly is the manpower. Um, we are experiencing a nursing shortage in our health system like other health systems. And so that's limiting the ability for us to be able to give it more um, than what we would probably would like to in that. So we have, and Dr. Brandstetter, I, you know, has done a lot of work at our health system to help set up that system to make it very efficient so that people can get it as quickly as possible. Because one of the points that if we didn't really mention earlier, it's important to get this product as quickly as possible, as soon as someone is deemed symptomatic or preventive and that. So the sooner you get it, the better the benefit for you. And any uh, key messages for your fellow physicians, Dr. Brandstetter, on this front? I think the big thing is this is most effective if given early in the course of illness. It can be used for any vaccination status in symptomatic people. If you have someone who's asymptomatic and exposed and tests negative, it's a good protection against developing those who are unvaccinated for a uh, preventative measure. Um, and it does protect against shedding within our communities. The important thing is for 12 and above for those at high risk of progression. The other thing that we haven't talked about is side effects, minimal side effects. The infusion reactions that are reported are rare and we've had very few, only a handful within our system and all have responded uh, to the uh, prompt attention by our uh, trained staff. So no need to hospitalize or need for long-term effect from any infusion reactions that we've seen. Um, so it is very safe, very well tolerated. Um, and certainly we're seeing great benefits within our community and maybe even seeing some of the decreased hospitalizations we've seen over the last couple of days, maybe a direct impact from these large numbers that we've been able to infuse through the last couple of weeks. 
That's great. And uh, Dr. Havlock, anything you'd like to add on that front? Yeah, no, I think it's real important to emphasize that timing issue. Um, and, and fortunately, that's been kind of a rate limiting factor, mainly with the manpower issue and the limited supply of time to get uh, patients in on a daily basis. Um, if uh, we are starting to see a, a change in the curve, what Dr. Branster was referring to is that the number of patients we've seen, again, has kind of peaked up in the past week at where we were close to in January, February. If, if we are seeing the numbers not go quite as high and maybe falling down, maybe that is a, a true reflection of the benefit of this treatment uh, in terms of hospitalized patients. Uh, so that, that that's really encouraging. And I think that data will come out and we can only look back more retrospectively in the coming weeks once we've been through it and can kind of look back at the data to see what we've done utilizing this. But I'd like to think, like Dr. Brandsetter has mentioned, that we probably have had a real positive impact on preventing people from going into the hospital with more serious disease. That's great. And I Dr. Brands Setter, do you have any suggestions for patients and physicians who would like more information on this? I really think the website I mentioned earlier, Combat COVID, has a great resources, both if you're a consumer and looking for more information, locations, but also if your provider wanting to know about fact sheets, answering frequently asked questions that your patients may have, a resource for uh, knowing what this is, has great video snippets that you can listen to, as well as written documents. So uh, check out that resource. Okay. And anything on the resources front, Dr. Havlick, or uh, you think that, uh, that? I think that covers it pretty well. Okay. So nothing else to add, Tom. Okay. And I, I did promise one health insurance question. So uh, I think a lot of patients will be curious as to whether health insurance generally covers this treatment or not. So the, um, the treatment itself is free because it's a EUA uh, approved drug at this point. So the government releases for free. The only costs that are charged to the patient is for the actual infusions and any, you know, visits if they go to the urgent care emergency room or wherever they go to get it. Uh, so the infusion costs there. Um, and so, and to my knowledge, insurances are covering that. Um, and for people that don't have insurance, they, you know, go through the usual, um, means that they do uh, going through the health system and apply for, you know, financial aid uh, help there. Okay. And I guess a quick question for both of you on a related uh, issue is the, uh, any updates on the, the booster shot? I know that everybody's, uh, uh, you know, that's also been in the news. So Dr. Branstead are beginning with you. Any, any, any news to report on that front? So the first thing I want to do is make a distinction between the additional dose for immunocompromised, so the moderate to severe immunocompromised. Think of that as they require three doses in their primary series, not two like most people. And that third dose is given 28 days after their second dose in a series, and that's with either Pfizer or Moderna. Now that is different from a booster shot, which we're looking at and what you're asking about is we've gotten uh, vaccinated. Now we're almost nine months, uh, maybe 10 months approaching on that um, had, since we've been vaccinated with the primary series. Do we need another one like we get an annual flu shot? And the answer is to be determined. So it looks like that's probably what the recommendation is going to be. Um, but we will know probably within the next month um, what that final recommendation mm -hmm. Okay. And Dr. Havlock, anything uh, you'd like to 
No, I think that covered it really well. I know our HIV patients uh, come in and ask us frequently, you know, do they need the booster or the third shot? And, you know, the recommendation for our HIV patients are that, you know, if they're controlled HIV disease, they don't need it. If they are newly diagnosed or uncontrolled, meaning they're not, viral loads are not suppressed, then they would be a benefit to receive that third shot. Uh, great. And before I let you go, get back to work, and I know you're both incredibly busy, especially right now, uh, I just wanted to see if you had any fi final thoughts or key takeaway messages, uh, beginning with Dr. Brandstetter. Uh, final takeaway is right now, monoclonal antibodies is the only authorized, emergency use authorized medication that is effective against COVID-19. All other therapies that we've tried so far, and that includes many things like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, azithromycin, are not effective as outpatient treatment. Do not delay getting people monoclonal antibodies by trying something else. Use monoclonal antibodies as your first option is my encouragement for outpatient treatment. Um, it is not indicated for inpatient treatment, um, but go ahead and make sure that you're finding locations that you can send patient to because this is our outpatient option to treat COVID-19 at the moment. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Havlick? Yeah, let me just, uh, you know, uh, follow up on what Dr. Brandstetter just said. So patients that are hypoxic and are deemed someone that should be hospitalized are not clearly, you know, that's the distinction for the most part where they're not really going to receive a, a good benefit from the monoclonal antibodies and they should be referred to the hospital for appropriate treatment there. Steroids, remdesivir, um, supplemental oxygen are kind of the starting point for those patients. The second thing I'd probably really want to encourage everyone to do is to still encourage vaccination. Um, I think the one thing that we are learning right now is uh, we're about nine months into getting people vaccinated. Uh, here at Wellstar, what we are seeing is that upwards of 90 plus percent of the patients in the hospital are unvaccinated. And 95% in the past week in the ICUs on ventilators were unvaccinated. In other words, very few patients have that have had vaccine have had uh, significant infection and that uh, problems. And, and so we know that there is a benefit in, and up to this point, we've had such um, a limited uptake of the vaccine. That's the one thing the general public as a whole really has not embraced and what we know really would be the best benefit for everyone in general. The more vaccine we see get out there, probably the less disease we'll see. And, uh, you know, we're going through what we call our fourth surge right now. And uh, it's getting kind of old. I think Dr. Brentster and I both agree that, you know, at once or twice we can go through this, but if we have to keep going through this again and again and again, you know, we've lost a lot of uh, healthcare staff, just they're just tired of doing it. And, um, and the patients coming in are very sick sometimes and families are frustrated. They can't come in and see the patients in the hospital. It's been a very uh, tough process. Um, this has not been an easy thing for, and I don't think the general public really appreciates what the healthcare workers in general, and, and when I say healthcare workers, I'm talking about the nursing staff, the dietary staff, environmental services, laboratory workers, everyone that has been part of, you know, taking care of these patients, and they all play an important role. Um, and we're all getting 
plain tired, you know, just because it's been so demanding and so tough on us. And so I think we really, if we're going to do something that's going to break the cycle, the vaccination first and foremost, in, and then the monoclonal antibodies for those who do actually get diseased would be a next step. It'd be nice to be able to give monoclonal antibodies as quickly as possible to everyone. Limited supplies, limited people have caused limitations to that. Well, well said, and a really important message there to, to close out the program. And uh, with that, I just wanted to offer our sincere thanks to Dr. Brandstetter and Havlick for addressing some really important issues today. Uh, I'd also like to follow up and thank the rest of our uh, tireless and heroic physicians and allied healthcare professors and staff for everything they do every day. From everybody at MAG, thanks for watching. and We'll catch up with you on the next edition of Top Docs. Thanks for watching this episode of Top Docs. Please share this program with your colleagues and family and friends. Remember to follow MAG on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget that you can get past episodes of the show at mag.org backslash topdocs. From everybody at MAG, we look forward to catching up with you on our next episode of Top Docs.